Hello, it's Lou Rosenfeld, and welcome to the newest edition of the Rosenfeld Review Podcast. I have a special guest today. Comes from a, a place called Silicon Valley. You might have heard of it. You might have heard of him. His name is Dan Olson. Hi, Dan. How are you? I'm doing great, Lou. How are you? Great. It's great to have you on the show today. Um, uh, you may know Dan uh, uh, from the Lean Product Playbook, which came out in 2015. It was published by Wiley, and, and uh, that doesn't stop me from wanting to talk to him. I mean, <laughs> you know, even though he 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 worked for some other publisher, uh, I, actually, I like a lot of the the Wiley books, and they've done a lot of great work in this space of lean and product management. That I think it's fair to say you play in Dan. Uh, I mean, I knowing a little bit about your bio. Uh, that seems like a pretty safe assumption. Dan led the um, Quicken product team at Intuit and did some similar work at Friendster. And these days, uh, out of uh, Menlo Park, is an interim VP of product for a lot of organizations that you certainly have heard of. And I don't want to forget this because this may be a way for you to meet Dan and some other great people. He runs a lean product and lean UX meetup monthly uh, out of Palo Alto. So um, that, that sounds like a really good group, and I'm glad that you, you've got product and, and UX together with Lean all kind of mixed together. I'm sure you have some pretty interesting speakers uh, under that umbrella. Yeah, we do. In fact, the logo, you know, a lot of times people talk about the triumvirate of product management, design, and development. So our logo is like a little, you know, Venn diagram of those two with Lean in the middle. Yeah, exactly. Oh God, and we've... You know, I'm sorry. <laughs> I, as someone who created one of those Venn diagrams about 20 plus years ago for IA, what doesn't have a three circle Venn? It's got to be, I don't know, one of these days we're going to master how to draw a four circle Venn and then everything's going to have to be blown up. I studied that earlier in my career, actually. I felt the need, I had a problem where I needed to map it properly. I needed a four circle and I went online and found. And there's actually, yeah, you can you can do it. Well, the important thing is, you know, if you only have a two-circle Venn, you can't really proclaim uh, anything of interest. It's just not very challenging. <laughs> but if you can master a four-circle Venn diagram, then you can raise your consulting rates at least uh, 50 That's to 75%. Right. So let, let's talk a little bit about, you know, some of the things that you're covering in the Lean Product Playbook and, and really a, just kind of about Lean in general. I mean... You know, this is an area that it's certainly not new, it's, but it, it's, it's come on strong in the tech space and certainly in Silicon Valley in the last, you know, I don't know, I'd say five-ish years, give or take. What's changed? What, you know, if someone has been asleep for the last five years, let's say a UX person who might be listening and they just did a Rip Van Winkle and they woke up, um, what do you tell them about uh, Lean Now versus some years ago? Yeah, well, um, you know, speaking of Venn diagrams, I think lean and product management uh, definitely are a Venn diagram that have a high degree of overlap. You know, I, I've spoken at the Lean Startup Conference out here in San Francisco a few times, and um, I have to say probably like over 75% of the people I meet are product people. Um, and then, you know, probably another good 15% are designers. So um, one of the things is just to not think of it as a distinct you know, kind of mindset are distinct, distinct from the, all the other best practices. A lot of other books are sharing about user-centered design and agile development, you know, or design thinking. There's ton, there's more overlap. There's more similarities, and there are differences, I think, in all those things. And and basically, my book, um, one of the things I liked is just that, that with the Lean Start movement, which started back around 2007 as a blog, um, it really just brought 
the kind of best practices that I was already kind of doing, uh, many of them, uh, to the forefront and, and, and gave them names, you know, like things like MVP, mm-hmm. you know, product market fit, which Mark Andreessen actually coined, you know, quite a while ago in a blog post. Um, and just put it all together into a package and I think just in a way that was understandable and accessible to a lot of people. Obviously, I added some new concepts as well. I don't want to diminish that, but took the old, mixed in with the new and put it into a package that made a lot of sense for a lot of people as a way to, you know, when you're building a new product, we all know most of them aren't going to succeed. It's like, how do we, you know, improve the odds and try to make this more of a science than an art? That That's the general idea here um, by, you know, applying best practices. And as far as how my book fits into the picture, um, you know, I've been, as you mentioned, I, I, my early part career was at Intuit, which was a great place after business school to learn product management and UX design, you know, and, um, and marketing and actually market research, which is really important these days. I think that, you know, I, I, I was fortunate to be working with like PhD market researchers. So I knew how to, I learned how to do qualitative interviews properly, how to do surveys properly. And, um, I think back to your question, what's changed, I think the general awareness of the importance and desire for research has gone up a lot. You know, it's not uncommon at all. You know, say 10 years ago, I'd be talking to startups and they wouldn't necessarily be like, oh, we got to go and run this by five users. But now it's pretty much canon that like at some point you need to go run your prototype or ideas by some users before you launch it. You well, know? let me ask you about that. So, you know, when people were, um, you know, talking a lot about lean in years past, uh, I think they were often talking about it in the context of startups that really didn't have time or necessarily money to do much. They were really in mm-hmm. a hurry. Efficiency was critical. Uh, you didn't have the, the, the benefits of necessarily bringing on a lot of other people in specialized roles beyond what your developer team was doing. Uh, now, you're saying that's changed. What I'm wondering is, are you having a different kind of conversation with startups, or are your conversations now actually with enterprises instead? It's both. I mean, that's the other thing I've seen. I mean, I, I did a book signing at the most recently in Startup Conference. It just happened the beginning of this month. And the people that came up to my table were product people from Exxon and Chevron and Target. You know, I was like, wow. And I was joking, uh, talking with with another lean author that was there and it's like we were, we were referring back to Jeffrey Moore's crossing the chasm model you know we were both like wow it looks like lean startup concepts have kind of got past the early adopter phase we've crossed the chasm now we're in the majority if these big companies are realizing hey we need to kind of uh, understand uh, and apply these concepts as well and, and he was like yeah I think it's late majority <laughs> I'm like well I don't know if it's early or late majority but we're in the majority so it definitely is uh, you know it is penetrating down there but but a few things on the word lean I mean so you know, one way it gets misused is people view a scrappy startup, and I've I've been a CEO and founder of a scrappy startup uh, that was bootstrapped, and they view lean as like, wow, you don't have a lot of resources, so you're lean, and you need to like be smart with your resources. You know, uh, other people misuse the word lean to mean like on the cheap, or you do things cheaply, or things like that. Really, lean comes from lean manufacturing, and um, and I was fortunate enough before I actually moved to Silicon Valley. I got a, a nighttime. I got a master's degree in industrial engineering at Virginia Tech, mm. where I first took lean manu- I took a lean manufacturing class, and as is before, I even came out to the valley and worked on software. And so when lean startup came around, I was like, oh, that's great. The general idea comes from actually back like the factory days and cars and Toyota. It was all about minimizing and eliminating waste. Like just if you think of economic value in a plant. It's like if the parts are sitting there not being worked on, things like that, how much you know excess inventory do we have and things like that. So it really is about reducing waste. So the best way to think about lean is reduce waste or said properly another way is like improve the efficiency or productivity of your process. 
You know, that's kind of the general idea. It's not about, hey, we don't have a lot of resources per se and we need to be scrappy. It's more about being smart about how you use your resources. And when applied to a startup or to a new product development more broadly, you know, and that's the funny thing is Lean Startup has the word startup in it. But, you know, as you just said, it's moving. It, it, the trend, one of the trends in Lean Startup is to see larger and larger companies embracing it and adopting it because they realize it's not, even though it says Lean Startup, it's really innovation. And I would just call it more broadly product development that you can apply these concepts to, to de-risk. And so instead of instead of saying, hey, you know, you're eliminating waste, but it's applied also in a, in a de-risking standpoint right. of, hey, what are, what are the riskiest assumptions? Let's go, before we go, and the idea is if you make a wrong assumption and you make a decision and you take action and spend resources based on that, you can avoid that if you test the assumption first. Well, let me ask you this. I mean, you know, so still a lot of like the initial impetus around, let's say, digital products um, for, you know, pushing lean forward, I think didn't come out of manufacturing. Maybe some, there was, you know, some certain connection there, uh, but it, it, it certainly seems to have come out of startups. And now that's changing. As you said, you, you do your book signing and you're, you're talking to people from ExxonMobil. Um, have we reached a tipping point at, at which the sort of energy or, or gravity around lean processes has has sort of tipped back to the enterprise is in other words who like where is the innovation in lean happening now and and are the startups learning more from the enterprises at this point or or, or is it still uh, the reverse well it's interesting because i mean again i would just maintain it's like it's a basically an approach and a mindset and a set of principles for product development no matter what stage you're in and it it resonated early with entrepreneurs and startup people because they're they live with the most risk. Right. Right. It's like, hey, I've got twelve months of funding. I gotta figure this thing out and get a product out there that people are using and willing to pay for, or else I'm done. Right. Um, and so I almost view it as two different markets in a sense. It's like the the startup people, that's it's a survival thing. It's a survival enhancement tool, if you will. Um, which basically uh, and and basically, it's it, the way to think about it is like how quickly can we achieve product market fit? Assuming you can even achieve it, how quickly can we achieve it? And by using the, these techniques, you'll achieve a higher level more quickly. Um, that's basically a way to think about it. In the enterprise setting, uh, I, I think the reason I wouldn't say they're necessarily learning a lot from each other is in an enterprise setting, it's a whole different situation where you've got, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars business units, lines of businesses that may have been around for a while, and they're in kind of the more mature life cycle of the product life cycle curve. And they're saying they're going, okay, how do we innovate? You know, we can't innovate. We have these big businesses, but how do we innovate new products and how do we bring new, create new markets and new products? And so that's what they're doing. You see different companies, big companies taking different tactics for that. Some, many create a Skunk Works labs, you know, like SAP has SAP labs, Walmart has Walmart labs. So I think that there, and, and other companies are doing different approaches. So it's just a fundamentally different beast to say, okay, how do we be more innovative and move faster? That's what the enterprise people want to do. And the startup people are, it's more about how can I achieve product market fit more quickly mm-hmm. so that I can live to fight another day, raise more money, you know, to continue to grow my business and grow my team to, to address this market opportunity, if that makes sense. No, it makes perfect sense. And, and actually you set up the, the next part of the conversation we're having quite nicely in that, um, you know, the, the question that a lot of UX people still are asking is how does what we do integrate or, or not yeah. with 
lean processes, and if it's if you're thinking about lean solely from the perspective of efficiency, there's a challenge there that's pretty obvious. But if you're thinking about it in terms of uh, mitigating risk, it becomes something of an easier sell, would you say? Yeah, and I think there, in efficiency, anything when you talk about time, there's the short run and there's the long run. <laughs> In the short run, and this even predates lean, it's like, you know, the typical story of, hey, well, we got to launch this product. We don't have time to do usability testing. You know, that that debate and discussion has been had many times over. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, in the short run, that may seem like the right decision. But in the long run, it clearly isn't because, you know, if there are issues with our products. So that's a debate that ends up being more of a cultural discussion at the company level of, hey, do, you know, do we really understand? Is it all about launching products or launching about launching products that meet customer needs well? You know, that's what that is. But back on the lean and, and the UX, I think it's critical. I think their importance has gone up even more because the bottom line, one is, if nothing else, also the importance of research. People realize, hey, we can't just have a bunch of ideas within our building and all these assumptions and just spend all this time talking to ourselves and saying how great this product's going to be. And that's why one of the phrases I like the most is Steve Blank's get out of the building. It's just a good short term to let you know, like, you know, if you're sitting there in meetings and you guys are whiteboarding stuff and you're coming up with all these great ideas, it's kind of like an ivory tower or a castle in the clouds. You need to get out of the building and make sure that those assumptions are, are accurate. And so I think, again, uh, there's an increased appetite and desire for UX research. And when it comes to UX research, most, many people will be like, wow, I'm not a UX researcher. I don't know how to moderate these customer interviews in a way that's good and is going to extract good learnings. So we need to find someone to do that. So increasingly, you know, I always talk also about the design gap at companies and at startups, you know, oftentimes you don't have a researcher. It's a luxury to have a researcher on your team. Um, you might get a contract researcher or the other thing you might do is look at your designer and say, Hey, can you, uh, can you, you're kind of, you're a UX designer. You're closer to research than we are. Can you run this sessions? And as you know, you know, a lot of designers are comfortable doing that. Some of them aren't, but like anything else, it's just a, a learned skill that anybody can get better at. Uh, and that's some of the stuff I talk in my book is how to conduct better user tests. But so user research is a demand for user research has gone up as a result of that. And then the other thing I think is people are recognizing that, you know, there's not just one way to design a product to meet these needs. You know, in the old days, it was just like, hey, let's just let's just design the product and go. And I think these days there's more appetite and appreciation for, wow, there's actually a few different ways we could tackle this from a UX design standpoint. Um, and so the desire to kind of, prototype things and do mock-ups before you build has gone up significantly. And so that, you know, as a founder, as a product manager, we can come up with a lot of ideas and say, hey, we think for this group of people, we need to solve these needs. And if we do so, we can be better than what's out there. The next step then, and once we agree on the kind of MVP feature set, the next step is to envision a solution of what that might look like. And that's a gap that design, you know, that's like a, a design chasm that needs to be crossed. And that's where you definitely need a designer. And and again, most companies these days know they need a designer. Um, then you get into issues where they may only have a visual designer, not an interaction designer. That's a separate thing. But at least in most places these days, they know they at least should have a designer. And they hopefully have one, have managed to hire one or identify a contract resource to, to help, you know, like I said, create what that solution would look like. Well, it's always good to talk with someone like you who's in the heart of Silicon Valley and and, and you guys are generally the furthest along. You're kind of, in a way, speaking to some of the listeners from the future. And it, it's heartwarming and, and uh, you know, just a good thing in general to know that uh, a lot of the, the challenges that uh, UX people, especially on the research side, 
uh, face today, uh, well, it, it's likely if, if Dan is experiencing your future that uh, you're not going to have the problems that you have today uh, a, a couple years hence. Uh, so that's, that's great, um, but I want to come back to something you were talking about a moment ago, Dan, to, to kind of tie it all together. You, you said that when we were talking about the, the sort of short-term versus long-term goals, uh, that that really comes down to organizational priorities and, and really organizational culture. Um, you know, I'd love to know if you have any either anecdotes or, or just general guidance about how people on the product side and people on the UX side and really you know, any configuration of people who care about experience can work together to move those types of organizations forward so that they are thinking not just in terms of the, the, the efficiencies that get us across the line the fastest, but to think about the longer term and to, to develop products that are part of healthier, broader systems and supported by healthier organizations? Yeah, no, I think that's a great question. And, um, you know, I often, in my as a consultant, I often, you know, help startups as an interim VP of product, as you said, Another thing that I do a lot is work with more established organizations where they already have a product organization and help coach them and try to do change management or do workshops. And so those are the examples where I see where those situations where I see examples relevant to what you're saying. I mean, um, and I think that a lot of times, you know, what can be helpful is uh, some kind of. Well, one is first and foremost some external stimulus. Like, it's either an external or, stim- or internal stimulus to promote change. Right, change just doesn't happen. So if it's like there's a company that's been successful in a market, and all of a sudden some competitor's eating their lunch, that's a great fear. Is a great motivator to get people to go. Gosh, what we need to sharpen our tools here. What are we doing, and how do we do it? So, so having you know, kind of getting at what's the core source of motivation for the change is good. It might be an internal motivation source. In one of my cases, the CEO of the company just had an intuitive feeling having been there for 13 years as CEO of the same company that, hey, we're just not launching products as quickly as we used to. It's just taking a lot longer. And the products that we're launching just aren't as innovative as I feel like we're capable of, you know. And in that case, that's a good example of a large organization where I came in and there was like, they had basically 10 feature teams, you know, a typical feature team with, you know, a one, a dedicated, a PM, uh, you know, and they had uh, design resources both on interaction and on visual, and then you know, uh, you know, one to three designers on each of those teams, and we trained everybody, and we talked about why we were doing this and what benefits we were hoping to get from adopting these lean approaches. And I think some one one of the best things you can do is 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 basically set up have an early success with, and this is a, true for any change management, right? Is have some early success that you can point at and say, look, hey. In the old days, this never would have happened. We never would have achieved these great results, but because we adopted this team, just tried these new processes. Look what they did, and that's what happened. Is basically, anytime you do change management, I feel like you get a bell curve distribution of, you get the three sigma people that are like, oh, we get it. We totally want to do this. We've been saying we needed needed to do this for years. I'm glad management's listening to us. Let's do it, and then they're ready to go. And you got the people in the middle curve who are kind of like, yeah, I kind of get it, and I think I have some of the skills, but teach me how to do this other stuff. And then you get the laggards who are just like, hey, you know, hey Dan, could you please just give us your talk again? We want to hear it again. You know, I was like, okay, I'll give it to you another time, but I think it's going to change anything, you know. So the interesting thing there is they stacked the decks. They basically took their most important product initiative, and they put like their best PM on it, their best designers, their best front end devs, and 
And they adopted this principle. And at the end of the day, it was great because they managed to launch this truly innovative new product that the marketplace hadn't seen in a record amount of time that got good reviews and external feedback from both press and users. And so then they were able to turn around and say, see what that team did. And that was like a nice shining beacon. So that's a strategy that you can try to get to get adoption. But change management at the end of the day is hard. You know, um, I think the other thing is also places can get kind of insular. And so bringing in external speakers and external perspectives can be super helpful, you know, Absolutely. and so a lot of times that's what that's what you can do. If you're just like, hey, I'm, I'm a sole UX designer, I'm a solo designer person, I want to get some more awareness here. Let's just start with a once a month brown bag, you know, opt in where we bring in some, you know, leading UX or product thinkers to talk about this and and grow it from there. Well, you know, you, you didn't know you were going to do this, but that's a great pitch for the 50 odd uh, experts uh, that Rosenfeld Media represents that teach something like, I think we have 65 day and two day long courses that are designed to be taught on site. So mm-hmm. uh, let me know if, uh, uh, as well as Dan, because that's he's certainly someone who can help there, but uh, certainly glad to talk with um, any listeners about bringing in outside expertise. Also, just getting back to the whole conversation of change management, I really like that, that story you were telling uh, the, the place that story can fall down is once that great success has, hap- has happened, there has to be someone in-house on the leadership side to make that conversation happen where the subject is, well, why was this team successful? What was different about the way they did things and who they were and how they were configured compared to uh, our traditional process and our traditional mm-hmm. approach? And uh, that's a leadership challenge that I think can't just come from any particular group. I think it's got to be at a pretty senior level. And I, I, I hope you're starting to see true leaders uh, of organizations take it upon themselves to facilitate that type of conversation. That It's reflective. It's not always an easy conversation to have right. with a, a group in a large organization with lots of silos and lots of politics and lots of entrenched interests. So, um, well, in any case, um, I think we'll have to leave it there because uh, I think we could go a, a lot longer, but uh, we got a lot of good things covered in this podcast today, and I wanted to thank you, Dan. Yeah, no, it's been, it was great. Thanks a lot. Dan Olson, uh, author of the Lean Product Playbook, uh, which came out uh, in 2015 with Wiley. Great to have you on the show today. Thanks again. Yeah, and I just I would just say like I if you guys anyone wants to check out any of my slideshares, I put a lot of stuff on SlideShare and on video and if they want to learn more about the meetup, they can go to danolson.com. It's just dan-olson.com and those links to all that. And that's Olson with an E. Oh yeah, thanks for clarifying. <laughs> yeah. No problem. <laughs> thanks again, Dan. Great to have you on the show. Thank you, Lou. Bye. Bye.